Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Yair Rosenberg is a senior writer for Tablet Magazine. He's covered elections in multiple countries, interviewed White House officials, taken on cyber Nazis. He's also a regular speaker and commentator on contemporary anti-Semitism, both online and off. But he's also got a softer side. For the last five years, he's been composing an original album of Shabbat melodies. He joins us now from his home in New York, where, like the rest of us, he's sheltering in place. Yair, welcome to the People of the Pod. Good to be here. (laughs) So let's talk about the hard news first. We are sheltering in place. What lessons can we learn from Israel right now that we should perhaps be applying here in the United States that we aren't doing so now? Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, if Trump looked to people who he sees as his, you know, sort of political kindred spirits in other countries, he would learn a lot about what should be done. You know, Britain is doing a complete full lockdown. They're enforcing it with the police. Israel just today, as you know, went into a similar sort of situation uh, where they're basically shuttering all of the non-essential things and people have to stay inside and there's limits to how you can go out and all of that. Mm -hmm. And this is draconian and it's hard, but if you do it quickly and you do it for like a certain period of time, then you hopefully really mitigate the impact of the virus on your healthcare system. And then it can be at manageable levels going forward. And then we have time to develop all sorts of uh, mitigation strategies, stuff that Trump wants, right? Whether it's, you know, antiviral medications that we discover can help, uh, which we already have, mm-hmm. or working on a vaccine, or figuring out which places in our country we can open because it's not as bad, right? All these things, ramping up testing. You just need to buy yourself time to do those things. The stimulus package will help, don't you think, or, or no? Yeah. And, you know, there are better and worse versions of the stimulus package, and that's what Congress is debating. Uh, But one of the ways you make sure that you can get through a lockdown is by supporting the businesses and the workers that are being forced by the government and by this pathogen, not through any fault of their own. It's not like the banks who messed over people and then suddenly find themselves in a bad situation. These are people who, through no fault of their own, are getting messed over economically. Mm -hmm. So you want the government to step in and tie them over during that time. So that way they can come back strong when we're ready to reopen the economy. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. So how do you think that the differences of opinion about how to handle this are going to affect the upcoming elections? Do you think it will play a role at all? Oh, I mean, I have no idea. You know this from covering Israeli politics, but anyone who makes predictions about these things uh, is asking to look like a fool in two months' time. <laughs> who would have even thought that there would be a global pathogen destroying the global economy two months ago? Right. The fact is there were certain signs of it, but, you know, people didn't know, you know, how far it would go and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't say that that's the deciding factor. I do think that Trump will obviously be judged on what happens with the virus. Now, Mm -hmm. if the virus peters out, because there are, for example, competing studies done by very good researchers in the United Kingdom, one of which most policy has been made on the Imperial College study, which shows that, you know, if we don't uh, really suppress this virus, it's going to kill millions of people in various countries, mm-hmm. um, and which is why policymakers have made such hard, you know, strong calls on these things. Uh, but there's another study that came out of Oxford more recently where they said, actually, we think the virus is a lot more contagious than people think, and many more people have it. Uh, which means that just a lot of people get it and nothing happens to them and we don't even know that they had it, but it also means that it will spread across the country pretty quickly and quicker than we thought and then a lot of people will be immune and the virus will peter out on its own at least for a little bit uh, until we say get another wave or immunity wears off. Right. Well, to be sure, 
Asian Americans are suffering the brunt of the prejudice, the blame, the cruelty out there having to do with the spread of the virus. But there are also a fair share of conspiracy theories bubbling up out there that, no surprise, blame the Jews. I'm curious what you've seen out there since you monitor this kind of stuff. What have you seen that maybe does surprise you or at least shocks you? And how do you control the spread of that virus? <laughs> yeah. So you've got two sort of anti-Semitic responses to the virus. One of them is what I always call the, the Goebbels gap, which is the amount of time between something terrible happening in the world and someone figuring out a way to blame the Jews for it. So that's what you're discussing, mm-hmm. which is that there are people out there in the conspiracy fever swamps who are you know, talking about this being some sort of Mossad thing or you know, Israel operated thing. And also other conspiracy theorists are blaming it on other shadowy actors. Mm. Um, So that's out there. And then there's another brand of anti-Semitism, which is the sort that uh, just celebrates when Jews die from it, uh, specifically Israelis, under the cover that anti-Zionism makes it okay to celebrate when random people die. Mm. Right. And so you had people after Israel announced this first coronavirus death on social media, and this was actually not a small, tiny group of people. It was a lot of people uh, tweeting horrific, nasty things, you know, like, let's go uh, when they saw that, you know, Israel has first coronavirus death. And of course, it comes out, of course, that it's an 88 year old. I think uh, he, was, he was 88 years old, a Holocaust survivor, you know, a wonderful, lovely, amazing human being. Uh, and a lot of those people ended up looking particularly bad. But of course, if this person was a truck driver, it would be just as evil. Right. Right. To celebrate that person's death simply because of their nationality. Right. Um, so that's another, you know, way that certain people have exposed themselves, right, in response to the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you've seen both of those things. I, they have been super prominent. I think that one of the things that, you know, a coronavirus world upending event does is that it sort of overwhelms everything else. So it's one thing if there's like a terrorist attack in France and it doesn't affect the vast majority of people in the entire world. So there's lots of people around the world who, as their pastime, can speculate which shadowy conspiracy or Jews were behind it. Uh, Uh, But when like you're actually being actively threatened by the virus, you have other things on your mind. Right. um, (laughs) And you don't have as much time to like get into super conspiracy theorizing. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, after disasters, that's when people start finding, trying to find people to blame. And then Jews are always on that list. Right. Right. So that's actually sometimes when you worry more. Right. Okay. Let's lighten the mood. <laughs> let's, in fact, let's start by lightening the mood with some music. Shalom aleichem, Okay, tell us about your Shabbat music album. Tell us about that tune we just heard and how it came about. Yeah. So for the last five years, I have been working on composing um, and recording an original album of Jewish music. And it's actually something that runs in my family. My grandfather was a Hasidic composer who escaped from Polish Lithuania through Shanghai and came to America. Those who know, know that there were a large group of yeshiva students who were saved by a Japanese diplomat named Sugihara, Mm -hmm. uh, who against his government's mandates wrote a ton of visas for these yeshiva students, enabling them to get to Shanghai and then to America and other places. Um, And my grandfather was one of them. So obviously that sort of talent, you know, gets diluted through the generations. And he was reputed, for instance, uh, repeat any melody uh, that he heard after hearing it just once. Oh, wow. And he was a very prolific composer. Um, and then when he came to the States, he became the uh, the sexton, the shamash uh, at KJ, the very august uh, modern Orthodox synagogue in Manhattan. And he taught everyone there to lead uh, davening and to, you know, read for their bar mitzvahs. And like to this day, the, the Nusach, the melodies they use there are his melodies. 
um, or his style, like the things that he brought to the synagogue, that is what they use. Wow. Uh, so sort of for years taking after that, I did compose things, but I never did anything with them. I had no real professional experience. I don't play any instruments. So okay. it was sort of hard to see where they would go. Uh, then five years ago, I was in Israel on a fellowship and they were giving me some money to do a project and I didn't know what to do with it. And they wanted to encourage you to do something that you wouldn't normally do. Uh, and I said, well, I've been sitting on these melodies. Um, I've never done anything with them. It would be kind of crazy, but maybe I can try to do it professionally. Oh, wow. And so I didn't know what I was doing. And I asked around to figure out what to do. And I hired an arranger for the music. I booked a studio. We hired musicians. And we recorded three of my songs. And 1.5 came out listenable. And it was a learning experience because that stuff was only somewhat good. But you learn so much from doing it. Mm -hmm. And then I came back to the States and started doing it all over again. And one of the things I learned is that it costs three times as much to do anything in the United States. And I started doing them all over again with a producer in Brooklyn named Charles Newman, mm -hmm. who is Jewish, but had never worked on a Jewish music album before, huh. uh, which is sort of the place I wanted to be because he brought all of these wonderful influences and this incredible, vast musical knowledge uh, without being sort of biased by what the industry has done before. Right, right. And we work together to sort of take my melodies and fuse them with more contemporary styles. And what you have here is, you know, the first couple songs are now coming out. Some of them have like a Celtic Irish feel. Uh -huh. Some of the stuff that's not out has, you know, an electronic dance music feel. Really, there's a wide range of styles. But I hope also very recognizably Jewish at the same time. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So I was going to ask, why are you pursuing this now? Yeah. While everybody is sheltered in place, I mean, you obviously have those challenges of not being able to come together in a studio, but why is this particular project important during this time? So I thought about postponing the official announcement and release of the music mm -hmm. because I sort of had planned it for early this month. And then I, being a journalist, was kind of aware that this pandemic was going to hit and break into the public consciousness yeah. uh, around the time that I was then <laughs> planning to release this. Uh, so not everyone was aware yet because people have their lives and their jobs and so many other concerns, but it's my job to know these things. Yeah. Right? So I knew that that was going to happen and I could have just, you know, so let's call this off. Let's, you know, wait for another time. Mm -hmm. But I actually then talked with some people close to me and uh, said, should I do this? And they said, no, it's the opposite. Uh, if people are going to be stuck at home, if people are going to be scared, people are going to be worried. Uh, you need to give them something that brings some joy and brightens up their lives. Yes. And especially because the album is Shabbat songs and so many people are spending Shabbat at home, cut off from their families, their loved ones, their communities. It can be very comforting to have some, you know, beautiful Shabbat music to bring you into the day. Mm -hmm. And so I realized like it's not necessarily the best time for me in other ways because yeah, that's wonderful for the music and for people. It's obviously not a great time to be asking people to support the crowdfunding because right. uh, people feel, you know, worried and secure. They're not sure if they should be, even if it's just, you know, $15, $36. But I felt the music was more important than like whether or not I get all of the, you know, the gold money because the crowdfunder will, it's one of those campaigns where whatever funds we raise, that's what we get. We don't have to hit the goal. And it's more important to me that people have the music when they need it. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I decided to do it now instead of waiting. So your crowdfunding source is on Indiegogo. Tell people how they can find it. Yeah, you can search for your Rosenberg music and it will probably come up pretty quickly. But uh, the link would be, uh, there's a short link that we created. So it's bit.ly slash Yetir Rosenberg music. Uh, that's the link, bit.ly Yetir Rosenberg music. And uh, you can hear the music that way. And bonus, if you want to you know, pre-order the album, you can get the album, you can get bonus tracks, you can get a recording from me if you want to learn to lead a particular Shabbat service. Because part of this, again, was sort of spreading music and uh, helping people feel empowered through music and brightening up their Shabbaton. And so I wanted to create options for people uh, that were just beyond like, oh, my music and helping other people, you know, add music to their lives.
Right. Well, Yair, as we say goodbye, let's listen to one more track from your album. And tell us about this tune first. It's being released this week. Yeah. So this is actually one of the earlier ones that I composed. It's a L'Chadodi. I composed it five years ago in Israel. I just sort of walked in the door. Um, you know, some of these melodies, you, you ask me where they come from, I don't know. Just walking around and it hits you and you're like, that one is good. 99% of what hits me is terrible. <laughs> um, and then I try to only record the 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get this one, I'm like, oh, that one's really nice. It's, you know, really just, it evokes Shabbat for me. So it's a sort of Irish folk lechadodi. It's designed to be easy for people to sing along. In fact, most of the melodies on this Shabbat album are designed to be easy to sing along because the goal, again, is to enhance people's Jewish lives and their Shabbatot. And so if you made something super complicated that I can sing, you know, in the key of A, right, it might be nice to show off my voice, but how useful is that to your family? Right, right. Um, and so I wanted to create something, and I feel like this L'Chadodi is that, and I feel like we could really use that sort of uh, sense of, you know, peace that it can bring and the sense of uh, sort of restful wistfulness that it can evoke, especially at a time when we can't necessarily sing together with others. Yes. Um, although I've, I've had the opportunity, thankfully, and now in multiple prayer communities to actually lead Kabbalah Shabbat over Zoom, right? Because the Kabbalah Shabbat prayer is traditionally done before Shabbat starts, so you can do it on Zoom without a problem. Uh-huh. And then, like, people have used this melody already. Um, and it's really lovely to have that sort of thing to share. And I'm hoping that it will uh, be as meaningful to others as it is to me. Lovely. Well, Yair, thank you so much for joining us. Stay healthy and Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Israel recently elected a new Knesset, and that Knesset would like to elect a speaker. Simple enough, right? Unfortunately, the old speaker, Yuli Edelstein, who is serving in an interim role, doesn't want to go, even though Israel's Supreme Court says he must. Some are calling this the greatest constitutional crisis in Israeli history, and it's no exaggeration to say that the outcome of this standoff will have a major impact on the shape of Israel's next government. Joining us now to help us understand this convoluted constitutional conflict is Chaviv Redig Gur, senior analyst at the Times of Israel. I should just add before we play my interview with Chaviv that it took place about an hour before the bombshell news broke that Benny Gantz and his part of the Blue and White Party would be leaving Blue and White to form a unity government with Prime Minister Netanyahu's Likud Party and its right-wing partners. The plan is apparently for Netanyahu to continue as prime minister and for Gantz to become either foreign minister or defense minister before eventually succeeding Netanyahu as PM in September 2021 if the government lasts that long. Gantz's party would also hold the justice ministry. Still, the topics Chaviv and I discussed are interesting and important and rest assured, we'll be bringing you all the news you need to know about the prospective new government Finally, after a year, in next week's episode. Now, here's my chat with Chaviv Redig Gur. Chaviv, thank you so much for joining us. 
So let's kind of begin at the beginning here. I mean, Yuli Edelstein has an amazing story. Who is he? Yuli Edelstein is one of the heroes of modern Jewish history. Um, Israelis know him when he began his political journey in uh, a party called Israel Baaliyah in the 90s with uh, Natan Sharansky. Um, but his he was a Zionist activist in the Soviet Union, uh, like Sharansky, and he actually sat he actually sat in in the Gulag and um, uh, for his Zionist activism he was prevented from working by Soviet authorities for many years. Uh, he suffered quite a bit uh, for his desire to make Aliyah and to allow Jews to come to Israel. Um, and like Sharansky, he also is a very um, uh, committed and serious thinker on questions of uh, democracy, of, of liberalism. He's right-wing and he's conservative. He believes in um, uh, Israel ending up in control of the West Bank, or at least a sufficient part of the West Bank for security purposes, that Israel doesn't shrink to nine miles wide uh, right in the middle. Um, but he is on the liberal end of, the, of that group, like President Reuven Rivlin, who argues that we will, we can't give up the West Bank, but also we can't deny civil rights to Palestinians. Eventually, somehow, it'll all work out. These are people who don't want to give up any part of that vision. There's a Hebrew word, mamlachtiyut, which roughly means the dignity required of, of institutions of authority. He really represents um, that, that dignity in government. Uh, the crisis we had uh, this week is strange for him. Like you say, he's someone who's been an institution in the Knesset, and he's long been referred to by many, um, you know, even people who aren't fans of Likud, as like a lowercase d Democrat, right? Someone who really, and maybe this is included in the idea of mamlachtiyut, which is an impossible to translate term, but, you know, he's someone who really cares about the institutions of democracy. That's been his reputation. Is he sticking to that reputation now? He feels that he is certainly within the bounds of those commitments. On March 2nd, we had an election. The day after the election, Likud celebrated its enormous uh, victory uh, because of exit polls. Um, the victory that was so enormous was very, very narrow, even in the exit polls. Benny Gantz of the Blue and White Party won the election, in a sense, he has a majority in the Knesset of 62 seats and then 61 when one member of Knesset who ran on the left uh, defected and became independent after Election Day. But um, but his 61-seat majority includes uh, different political factions that won't work together in Parliament on any issue except one issue, and that issue is uh, forcing Benjamin Netanyahu into retirement. And so Benny Gantz has a coalition to oust Netanyahu, but does not have a coalition to then build his own government. Uh, and so the Knesset right now is stuck with a Benjamin Netanyahu who lacks a majority, a Benny Gantz who has a majority, but only to oust Netanyahu and not to form a government of his own. And in the middle of that stalemate, um, Yuli Edelstein uh, decided that as Speaker of the Knesset, or Interim Speaker of the Knesset, he wasn't chosen Speaker, uh, he hasn't been speaker for two Knessets already, um, decided to freeze the Knesset plenum to refuse to allow the Knesset plenum to meet and vote. And the reason he didn't want the Knesset plenum to meet and vote is that Blue and White was going to pass, on first of all, constitutional amendments that were going to say that an indicted member of Knesset, Netanyahu is indicted on corruption charges, uh, can't serve as prime minister. So they were going to legislate their political opponent out of out of the ability to run for prime minister. And they were doing it on an argument that 
he is indicted for corruption. So you should, this is a legitimate standard. A cabinet minister who is not the prime minister cannot serve as a cabinet minister if there's an indictment uh, against them. So it's, it's a, applying a very reasonable standard in Israeli politics. But it's also legislating a constitutional amendment in real time against your political opponent. In other words, both sides have a good argument that this is a, a real problem. And, and Edelstein said if they legislate Netanyahu uh, out of the prime minister's chair, then they won't negotiate a unity government. Now, the only way out of the stalemate is a unity government with Blue and White and Likud together. And then they have a majority for absolutely everything they want to do. Gantz and Netanyahu can't agree on a unity government because of one very simple question. Who goes first? Uh, we are going to form, whenever a government is formed, it'll be the 35th government in Israel's history. Israel's 72 years old. So even though in theory on paper we elect a government for four years, they only actually last an average of about two years. And that means that whoever goes first in the first year and a half, the first two years, they're the prime minister. The second person is not going to be prime minister uh, for very long. So it's not, the rotation is a little bit of a, of a, of a red herring. Uh, whoever goes first won the election. It sounds like we're talking about an executive branch issue, right? Who will be the you know head of government? And yet the way we're coming to it is through a legislative issue. We're talking about who will be the speaker of the Knesset. What are the responsibilities of the role of speaker of the Knesset? Why is it such a, you know, kind of plum prize that the parties are fighting over it in this kind of, you know, extreme way that I've heard referred to as, you know, the greatest, you know, constitutional crisis Israel has faced in its history? The fight over who is prime minister and who runs the executive branch and what the executive branch looks like and what its policies are is always a fight in parliament. Um, the Knesset speaker is a very, very powerful position because he, under law, has the right to set the agenda of the plenum, of what the members of Knesset can vote on. It's also a very powerful position because once you elect him, it's very, very hard to kick him out. You uh, need some, I think, I think it's 90 members of Knesset out of 120 to remove one in the middle of his term. But having said all that, Edelstein has a point that he is trying to delay blue and white passing legislation, constitutional amendments against Netanyahu, because then blue and white will have no reason to compromise and form a unity government. It's really important to understand the argument against Edelstein and why blue and white feels that there's been an assault on democracy. Edelstein is not an elected speaker of the Knesset. He hasn't been chosen by this Knesset. He's something called an interim speaker. He has uh, An interim speaker is a position of someone who runs the plenum meetings for the very, very short time between the swearing in of a new Knesset and the election of a speaker of Knesset, which historically happens sometimes within hours uh, and, and sometimes, I think once it lasted 30 days because of some complicated coalition negotiations, but that's, that's, that's it. But he's not a regular permanent elected speaker, and, uh, and he's used the powers of a regular permanent elected speaker for the very first time in Israeli history, and he's used it to shut down the Knesset so that Blue and White, which has the majority, can't legislate what it wants to legislate, and incidentally can't form committees to pass budgets and oversee an unprecedented emergency situation in Israel. What is Edelstein's case here? Is it because there are kind of two emergencies going on in Israel, maybe? There's the one that's the very slow boiling emergency of this is a democracy that can't seem to manage to democratically elect a real government. That is certainly a type of, you know, 
emergency. They've now had three elections in a year. And the other emergency, obviously, is the same emergency that the rest of the world is facing, which is the coronavirus emergency. Is he saying that he kind of, you know, needs to stay in power? He needs to stay at the head of the legislature because of the voting emergency, the breakdown of the democratic process? Or is he saying he needs to stay in this role because of the coronavirus? He started with the coronavirus explanation. Um, uh, he doesn't want the Knesset to meet because there's a danger to the members of Knesset if they meet. Um, nobody took that very seriously. And then he gave what I think was his real explanation, which doesn't sound good in the middle of an emergency because it's politics. And that was that if he lets Blue and White pass its laws, it'll put Netanyahu out of the running and it will essentially make it impossible to have a unity government. And it will send Likud, now that its candidate can't be prime minister, Likud will now prefer a fourth election and Blue and White has no majority coalition for a government. So in other words, if he doesn't force Likud and Blue and White into a unity government together, we're going to a fourth election in the middle of this virus crisis. Yesterday... Uh, he resigned. Last night, for the very first time, Benjamin Netanyahu sent his people to negotiate a real unity government with Blue and White, and they negotiated into the night. I don't share, you know, the screaming and pearl clutching and shirt tearing and I don't know what other metaphors there are <laughs> about, uh, about the fall of democracy. Uh, we are... We, Israel has a very strange democracy. Um, it's not entirely clear where our democracy comes from. We, people sometimes think that we're Hebrew-speaking American Jews. Uh, we are not Hebrew-speaking American Jews. Uh, half of us come from the Arab world. The half that is European is from parts of Europe that never had democracies. The vast majority of Israelis who ever landed here, the first time they ever voted was here. Uh, and so we have a country that has no democratic tradition, uh, no constitution, and certainly not in the Anglo-Saxon sense. Um, uh, very, very few rights actually guaranteed under law. Almost our entire democratic system is informal. Um, and, uh, you know, we have religious freedom, but not in law. The law is not give us religious freedom. We have gay marriage since the 90s, but not in any law. It's just everyone agrees they're married and they can sue each other for alimony. <laughs> but there's no law. We don't even have civil marriage. Um, so we have this very strange democracy. I, this, this strange democracy is bottom-up. It's a, a social democracy. Everyone agrees that we're in a democracy, and therefore we're in a democracy. We don't have the very sophisticated constitutional frameworks of places like the United States or France um, with all kinds of interlocking and interdependent institutions. That democracy is very, very strong. It has survived many, many crises, and I think it's going to survive this one, I don't even think this is a significant crisis. The problem here is the collapse of the rules of the agreements that were about how we run our politics. And that's going to be very damaging. Well, Khaviv, thank you for guiding us, at least through some understanding of the crisis. We will continue to be monitoring it in the coming days and weeks and are you know, reassured by your comments about you know, this not being a pearl-clutching moment, but it's one that we'll certainly be watching avidly from abroad. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we hope that you and your family are all staying uh, safe and well. Thank you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Amanda borshel Dunn, the Jewish World Editor at the Times of Israel. Amanda, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? 
Hi, Manya. Hi, Sefi. So like uh, everyone else here in Israel, for the past couple of weeks, the coronavirus crisis has felt a little too close to home. The six kids are all home from school, and that makes my quote-unquote essential work as a journalist a bit more complicated, of course. But really, it's actually my mother-in-law who's giving me a low-burn flame of anxiety. You see, her Jerusalem-assisted living center has been in the news for the past several weeks because it's a hot spot of contagion here. She, like the other 170-odd residents, were put under total lockdown two weeks ago after it was discovered that the social worker there in the building had been infected with COVID-19 and spread it. As we all know, my mother-in-law's 80 and up crowd is in the high-risk category. So one Friday morning, with no warning, <laughs> it was decided and announced over the PA system that the residents would no longer leave their small apartments, even to enter the hallway or throw out their trash or anything. The first Israeli victim was actually a resident there, as was the third. Several others are still fighting for their lives. It's a bit scary. But when I ask my mother-in-law on the phone about what's going on, she's decidedly blasé. Initially, she said she was reveling in her freedom from making lavish Friday night dinners and that while she misses the grandkids, she's happy not to have her weekly shifts watching them. Even after residents became critically ill, she told me, who wants to live so long anyway? Not me. Anyway, people die every year from the flu. Nubemet. At the same time, this realist also is the first to forward a raunchy joke or send a funny video. It's got me thinking. Actually, since October 2018, in covering the shooting at the Pittsburgh Tree of Life Synagogue, I've been thinking about this weird super ability of the Jewish people to see humor in every situation. I was sent by the Times of Israel to cover the aftermath, and in each of the four funerals I attended, there were jokes and funny stories. It was truly laughter through tears. I also think about what a jolly Holocaust survivor called Rene Gantz told me five years ago in her Tel Aviv apartment before a joint trip to Auschwitz. For Jews, one eye always laughs while one eye cries. She's since died, but I've remembered her infectious laugh often. It seems so weird in Pittsburgh, and again now, when I'm seeing the massive waves of satire and social media memes filling up my Israeli family's WhatsApp feed. And when I say filling up, I mean overflowing. To try and figure it out, I recently phoned up four Israeli-based funny men, comedians and satirists, and reached out to several U.S. scholars of Jewish humor as well. You can read the results in a long feature I wrote on the Times of Israel website and listen to two-parter in the Times of Israel podcast feed with some interviews with them. But this is all coming to say, one of the best explanations I heard came from stand-up comedian Jonathan Barak, who said, the first rule of comedy is that comedy is tragedy plus time. But for Jews, time is irrelevant. That's why Jews can make fun of tragedies as they occur, because we've been suffering for like 5,000 years, so no joke is too soon or too late. We can make jokes about being slaves in Egypt, and we can make jokes about the Holocaust, and we can make jokes about the coronavirus. And you know what? Maybe laughter really is the best medicine because after speaking with all these funny people and seeing this crisis in the context of all that Jewish history, I feel better. How about you, Manya? Thank you, Amanda.
And I did read your piece. My favorite quote was the guy who said, you don't want to be the idiot on the Titanic joking about the iceberg. At least wait until you get on the lifeboat. Well, since that lifeboat hasn't yet arrived for us, we will not be making jokes about coronavirus at our Shabbat table. We will be marveling at the new normal we've managed to establish in our home, thanks in large part to my husband. He has been a savior through all of this, taking the morning shift with the kids while I work and staying up late long after I crash while tucking someone in. He has been remarkable. And so I want to publicly thank him here and plan to personally toast him at our Shabbat table. I'm worried about how this period will affect our marriage. I'm a very independent introvert, so sharing my home with three others, two of whom whine a lot and having no escape hatch, has been more than unsettling. I anticipated the slights, both real and perceived, would pile up during this time. But being confined together, unable to walk away, has forced us to confront those slights as they happen. For example, confinement has fueled my penchant for starting big reorganization projects. My husband has called me out for not finishing what I start, a perfectly valid criticism that he's been able to overlook for years. But not now, not as he's stepping over pantry contents now in the hallway because I want to alphabetize the shelves. Did I mention my husband's a mensch? Yes, instead of a pile of slights, we've been addressing issues much more directly as they come up, and we hug each other a lot. I read in an article about corona marital strife that couples should work hard to ban contempt from their conversations, no eye-rolling or scoffing. Yeah, that's not going to happen. And when we listen to each other, we should ask questions like, why is this so important to you? It's important to me because I said it was, end of discussion. So as you can see, we have a little bit more work to do. But the bottom line is, the quarantine might not be as bad as I thought. It actually might be good for our marriage. We need each other now more than ever before, and we're recognizing that in sickness and in health. It might be good for other relationships, too. Listen, this virus not only takes lives, its victims die alone in hospital wards with no friends or family nearby in order to prevent its spread. So it's especially important to remember we are not alone now, whether we are connecting with our friends and family via Zoom, FaceTime, or this podcast. We need each other, and this has been a potent reminder. Lately, I've heard from old friends I haven't heard from in ages, and I've reached out to a few myself. I treasure those reconnections. They were long overdue. Those bonds, our marriage, our family, that's what we will be talking about and celebrating at our Shabbat table. Well, before my husband and I argue about who does the dishes. Sefi, welcome back. I am so relieved to see you. Healthy. What will you be talking about at your Shabbat table? Assuming all goes according to plan, my Shabbat table this week will actually be my parents' Shabbat table out in the suburbs and will feature my whole nuclear family. Like many people, I'm eager to get out of my New York City apartment and into a less densely populated environment. I have been delaying my decamping because I was sick. And while tests were nowhere to be found, all of the symptoms lined up for a mild case of COVID-19. So what's that phrase we're all using out of an abundance of caution? I have been quarantining myself in my room in my apartment. I'm blessed with my own bathroom and even a little personal office. I'm blessed with several windows to let in natural light and the breeze. I'm blessed with strong Wi-Fi and logins to both Netflix and Hulu. And more importantly, I am blessed with caring and compassionate roommates who, rather than acting as my jailers, conscientiously brought me food at regular intervals and made sure that I had everything I needed. Nevertheless, last Shabbat was weird. I mean, the Shabbat before that was weird, too. There was no shul, services were canceled, and synagogues were closed. But I was with my roommates, 
praying quietly with them, eating with them, playing games with them, going out for a Shabbat afternoon walk with them. We may have been apart, but we were apart together. This past Shabbat, it was just me in my room. That's where I prayed, that's where I ate, that's where I did a lot of reading and sleeping. Despite the fact that my roommates were just on the other side of the wall, it may have been the most solitary 25 hours of my life. I expect this Shabbat will feel a lot more normal for me. There still won't be shul, but it certainly won't be the first Shabbat I'll have spent just with my parents and siblings. I know that for many of our listeners, you may be spending Shabbat or even the whole weekend or beyond without anyone around you. I want you to know that whoever you are or are not with, you are not alone. We are with you. If you need anything or just want to talk, you can email Manya and me at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. The numbers suggest that the story will get worse here in the U.S. and perhaps the New York area especially before they get better. We will get through it, each one of us on our own, together. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 